0: Today is is the is the penultimate week of our short series through um, select psalms, and I tell you that. Uh, one, because there are very few instances where I can organically use the word penultimate, and it makes sense, and I wasn't going to, you know, leave that bell unrung. Uh, And the other, it it helps to know that we're, we're kind of landing the plane on a series, you know, that does tend to generate a little bit more interest, like when you're reading the last page of a chapter. So this is the penultimate week of our Psalms study. And you might have noticed, as we've been going through these seven weeks in the Psalms, that this has doubled as a mini-series on the life of David as well. You know, that was, that was by design, that was intentional. Not everything we always do is perfectly intentional, but this, this was. Um, you see, it, it, it's nice to read these psalms and kind of hold them in isolation, kind of parsing them out as their own distinct theological treatise, if you will. But when we are able to attach them to what's happening in the life of the writer, what's happening in the life of David, It tends to add a little bit more color to each of these psalms. It tends to add a little bit more depth to the prayers. And so that's what we've been doing through this series. We've been reading the psalms, we've been studying the life of David, the one who wrote these things. And that's what we're doing today. And today's psalm, Psalm 62, I think is attached to one of the most dramatic and intense scenes in all of David's life. In fact, I believe this is the ultimate low point of his entire life. And so we're going to read Psalm 62, and it's short, so we're going to read it twice. I'm going to read it once, just kind of on the front end. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what was happening in the life of David that compelled him to write these words. And then we're going to read the psalm again and see how it colors our reading a little bit. So church, hear now a reading From Psalm 62. For God alone I patiently wait. He is the one who delivers me. He alone is my protector and deliverer. He is my refuge. I will not be upended. How long will you threaten a man like me? All of you are murderers, as dangerous as a leaning wall or an unstable fence. They spend all their time planning how to bring their victim down. They love to use deceit. They pronounce blessings with their mouths, but inwardly, they utter curses. Patiently wait for God alone, my soul, for he is the one who gives me hope. He alone is my protector and deliverer. He is my refuge. I will not be shaken. God delivers me and exalts me. God is my strong protector and my shelter. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is our shelter. Men are nothing but a mere breath. Human beings are unreliable. When they are weighed in the scales, all of them together are lighter than air. Do not trust in what you can gain by oppression. Do not put false confidence in what you can gain by robbery. If wealth increases, do not become attached to it. God has declared one principle, two principles I have heard. God is strong. And you, O Lord, demonstrate loyal love, for you repay men for what they do. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, we are prepared to listen. Speak to us about your word. Jesus, use this time to glorify yourself. And to build up your church. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so on the whole, it's pleasant, right? Like we, we see we we see plenty of themes kind of echoed throughout Psalm 62 that we've been highlighting through the entirety of this series. You know, we we see that God is shelter. He's refuge, he's a vindicator, he's strong, he's a giver of hope, he's a giver of rest, etc. You know, all of these things which are categorically true that we've been talking about at length through these series. And many of us right now would, would stand and both affirm and celebrate these characteristics of God without reservation, right? And it's easy. It, it is really easy to do that when we read Psalm sixty-two, and we, you know, we could say with integrity and, sincer- and sincerity that, yeah, I stand alongside David. I affirm all of those characteristics about God. I could repeat all of those things with sincerity, and yet I wonder if the ease with which we say those things might change, if the ease with which we affirm all of those. Would, would vanish a little bit if we were living through the thing that David was when he said this prayer. If our experience was the same as his, if we would so vigorously affirm all of these characteristics about God, which again, I said are categorically true, it might just be more difficult to confess them as such. So what was going on? What was happening to David when, when, when he wrote this psalm when he prayed this prayer. Like I said, I believe this is the darkest point of his entire life because it is just a heap of pain. And, you know, it's the perfect instantiation of when it rains, it pours. It just never seemed to stop being bad for David. So, so what was happening? So David had, had a number of children from a bunch of different wives. You know, that's a conversation for another time. But one, one wife gave him a son, Absalom, and a daughter, Tamar. And another wife gave him a son, Amnon. And Amnon, Tamar's half-brother, very inappropriately fell in love with her. And so she, very appropriately, continued to rebuff all of his advances. Being frustrated by this and well aware that he was in a position of power as the king's son, devised this really sinister and dark plan to take Tamar and to rape her. And that's exactly what he did. That's painful enough, you know, Your kids doing this to each other. Absalom, you know, Tamar's full biological brother, when he learned about this, was understandably irate toward Abnon. And he devised a sinister plan of his own to get Abnon drunk and then to have him killed. And, you know, inclined as we might be to kind of say, the dude had it coming, I, I get it, I'd, want to, I'd probably want to do that too. Absalom wasn't willing to take the chance that other people would be so charitable and so, in fear for his own life after killing his half brother, he fled a few hundred miles to the east to a land called Gesher. Now David catches wind of all of this. He's he's told the entirety of the story and he is understandably gutted, right? Like who wouldn't be? How could you not be? You have these two sons. One is is a is a predator who's now dead. Another is a murderer who's now gone. And he has all these complicated, really painful feelings. And it says he mourns for years about this. And he has the, the, this, this deep pain because he wants to go to Absalom, his son, who's now a you know, hundred miles away. He, he, he longs to be with Absalom, but his heart's conflicted because he's also the murderer of his other son, and so for three years, they're estranged, and Absalom stays in Gesher. And then after three years had passed and three years of mourning, David is convinced to kind of offer Absalom at least at a, at a formal level forgiveness, like to welcome him back to Jerusalem and promise him safety when he comes back, like I'm not tricking you to come back so I can avenge Amnon. But even though he offers him this, this formal kind of high-level forgiveness, he won't offer him an intimate, personal forgiveness. So he welcomes him back to Jerusalem, but he will not meet with him. He will not see him. I guess it's just enough to have him closer. And so Absalom then kind of sets up out at the city gates of Jerusalem. And out at the city gates, this was... This was a place of gathering, this was a place where business was done, this was a place where hearings would be held, and Absalom became a person of influence, hanging out around the Jerusalem city gates. You know, 2 Samuel, that that details this entire story, kind of describes Absalom as a really good-looking, really charming, really warm person. You know, as people would be on their way past the city gates to demand an audience with David, uh, he would kind of intercept them, like, well, let me, let me see if I can help. Like, why don't I hear your case? And if they would try to, you know, bow down before him, he, he wouldn't let them. He would shake their hand, he would kiss them, he would treat them like an equal. And so because he was doing this, and he was really charming and really warm to these people, he started to gain a lot of popularity amongst the people. And for four years, for four years, David would not let him in front of him and Absalom just hung out at the city gates, kind of acting as magistrate, but doing so in such a way that was currying all this favor with the people. He was becoming exceedingly popular in Jerusalem. And it came to the point that after four years, Absalom said, it's time for me to be king. I need to kill my father David, and I know all of Israel is behind me on this. And so as as these plans were starting to be in motion, an advisor of David's caught wind of this and rushed to David and told him everything Absalom was planning. and And David panicked; he was frantic in an instant. And so we and screamed to his servant, said, "We have to get out of here! All of Israel is with Absalom. How can we be delivered if we don't leave right now?" And so he tore his clothes, he put on the clothes of the beggar, so he could sneak out of the city undetected. He would he didn't have shoes on and 2 Samuel says he was wailing and weeping his entire time out of the city. And then there's this really important part in the story where he's gotten out of Jerusalem and the text indicates he paused and he turned around and he looked at this city that he just fled from. And it's in this moment where he pauses and he turns around the most historians and scholars believe he prayed the prayer of Psalm 62. This frantic, scared monarch who's on the run for his life being pursued by his son gets out of Jerusalem. He pauses. He turns around. And he prays this. For God alone, I patiently wait. He is the one who delivers me. He alone is my protector and deliverer. He is my refuge. I will not be upended. How long will you threaten a man like me? All of you are murderers, as dangerous as a leaning wall or an unstable fence. They spend all their time planning how to bring their victim down. They love to use deceit. They pronounce blessings with their mouth, but inwardly they utter curses patiently wait for god alone my soul for he is the one who gives me hope he alone is my protector and deliverer he is my refuge i will not be shaken god delivers me and exalts me god is my strong protector and my shelter trust in him at all times you people pour out your hearts before him god is our shelter Men are nothing but a mere breath. Human beings are unreliable. When they are weighed in the scales, all of them together are lighter than air. Do not trust in what you can gain by oppression. Do not put false confidence in what you gain by robbery. If wealth increases, do not become attached to it. God has declared one principle, two principles I have heard. God is strong. And you, O Lord, demonstrate loyal love For you repay men for what they do. Okay. So after our first reading, like I said, perhaps we felt inclined to simply identify the movements of this psalm as a pleasant or agreeable cataloging of God's characteristics. But now I hope that you are able to hear the desperation behind each of those words. Really what this is, what what all of Psalm 62 is, is is a liturgical plea. And yet it's not just a dramatic retelling of the circumstances that he finds himself in. You know, we tend to do that. Like, in, in, in our darkest moments in prayer, we, we plead our case before God by kind of outlining how j- bad things really are for us. And then we demand an audience. We demand answers. You know, if, if, if David was to pray kind of in that vein that's so familiar with us, it would have taken the form of, God, I'm on the run for my life from my son whom I spared. Why would you let this happen to me? What have I done? won't you undo this? That's not so uncommon a way that we pray. But this Psalm 62 is not just David retelling his own plight. It's actually something far more significant. It is a confession and a pause to himself of what he knows to be true. I mean, consider consider the language of this psalm. Time and time again, he uses the words that we translate into English as protector and refuge. We get those from top to bottom in the psalm. And, 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 you know, I understand by virtue of the fact that we've heard language like that through the entirety of this series, it might be easy to gloss over those words and kind of chop them up to being nothing more than a generic allusion to being safe, not so dissimilar to what we've talked about already But it is a bit different because in each of the psalms we've looked at previous, David highlights how in God he takes shelter. But now he's saying something a little bit more weighty. He's saying, not only in God do I take shelter, but God is the shelter. You are my shelter. And it's making a pretty significant point. Because the most accurate translations of these words that we get protector and refuge from, yeah, th- those are fine in English, but the literal Hebrew translation for those two respective words are high rocky summit and elevated place. And, and you wonder, like of all the things to mutter through tears as your life is unraveling, to say multiple times, God, you are my high rocky summit. What? You are my elevated place. That surely would not be my default in this kind of scenario. So why repeat these phrases over and over and over again? Well, in college, I spent a month in Turkey. And to each of the historical sites that we went to, by far uh, the most impressive, best preserved uh, historical sites of interest were at the Acropolis of a city. And if you don't know what an acropolis is, that's that's quite all right. I didn't know it at the time. In fact, we were standing on an acropolis and I asked our tour guide when we would be visiting one. <laughs> and though I may have been the recipient of piercing snickers at the time, I promise you will not be. So what is an acropolis? Well, it just acro is the Greek word for highest, polis is the Greek word for city. So an acropolis is the highest point of the city. And these, these acropolises were defensively oriented positions. Ordinarily in the center of the city, and they were the spiritual hub of the city. It was a place of military advantage because it was so elevated. There was this natural defense, kind of being on high ground. Hence, why every place that I visited the most impressive ruins were always at the Acropolis. That was the center of religious and municipal life. Well, David picked Jerusalem as his capital city for this exact reason. Jerusalem is, is an Acropolis. You know, that's, that's a Greek word applied to a land in Hebrew, in Israel, so ignore that. But Jerusalem is significantly higher elevated than the regions around it. The valleys around Jerusalem are so low that the city was kind of had its own natural defense, right? And it's this city that David has been driven out of. His hand-picked place of military advantage to be his own spiritual hub. He's been run out of town and after he leaves Jerusalem and he's descended out of the city, he pauses. He turns around and says to God through wailing and tears, you are my high, rocky summit. And that's the line he keeps repeating. You are my high, rocky summit. As he's looking at what was his hand-picked high, rocky summit. He doesn't have it anymore. And he's saying to God, you are that. You are my high, rocky summit. You are my elevated place. And it's lovely. It's just, it's lovely. Because where one might be tempted to look at his city, his place of advantage, and say something to God like, give that back. Give that back to me. You're capable. Would you be willing? Give that back to me. He doesn't say that. He says, you are that to me. And after confessing to himself, that truth allowed his his focus pretty dramatically shifted. You see, it didn't seem to be on the front of his mind anymore. The preservation of his own life; he seems to be most interested in remaining aligned with the will of God. After he confesses this to himself, you know, in in there, there's a lot of the story I didn't tell you because it's quite long. Go to Second Samuel fourteen and. You can read it. But part of what they did in their escape from the city is they they took the Ark of the Covenant out with them. David wanted that with him. And after he prays this, he says, take the Ark of God back to the city. If I find favor in the Lord's sight, he will bring me back and enable me to both see it and his dwelling place again. However, if he should say, I do not take pleasure in you, then he will deal with me in a way he considers appropriate. Guys, David is still in a calamitous situation. He is on the run for his life from his son who's trying to kill him, who now has the approval of all of Israel. His situation is bad. And moments ago, we had this picture of a frantic monarch screaming at his servants, running, changing his clothes to be incognito. And that, by way of prayer, changes to: If I find favor in the Lord's sight, He will bring me back. However, if He should say I do not take pleasure in you, then He will deal with me in a way He considers appropriate. Like what a change! What, what caused this change? Well, like I said, Psalm sixty-two presents itself as a liturgical plea and here's the thing about liturgy it doesn't always need to characterize our reality but it's at its best and it's it most useful when is it a retelling and a confession of our beliefs oftentimes to ourselves notice notice that before the prayer who david was most concerned with It was Absalom. He was most concerned with Absalom and what he was doing. After the prayer, he was most concerned with God and what he was doing. I mean, why why do you think that we pray together corporate prayers? We've already prayed four of them, I think, by the time I got here. Why do you think we do this? It's prescribing to ourselves truth. You know, the opening line of this psalm is ordinarily translated, my soul finds rest in God alone, which, you know, might cause us to think David is saying, like, I'm already there. You know, like, the therapeutic, like, ah, when you settle into a hot tub, like, ah, my soul finds rest in God alone. Not at all what's happening here. Do you think, think, do you think those would be the first words he utters when looking back at Jerusalem? The more accurate ordering of these words in the Hebrew grammar is, Toward God is rest, O oh my soul. It's a statement aimed at himself. It's all he can do to keep from unraveling further is tell himself the truth. And it's these words, toward God is rest, O oh my soul. It's a desperately scared man reminding himself that he didn't, though it appears to have just lost everything. That in God, he still has elevated space, and his soul can be at rest. You know, this whole instance reminds me of a, a, an idea, a quote by a cheeky Scottish minister named Alistair Begg. I, I think I've quoted him before. Uh, he's, a, he's a man I really admire. Um, and he, he talks about how we engage worship in liturgy. And he said this, And you just have to imagine I have a Scottish accent. It sounds way better that way, but I'm not going to try. He said, when I arrive on Sunday, don't ask me what I feel. I feel rotten. I probably just kicked my dog or spilled my coffee. I'm a wretch. Ask me, rather, what I know. Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. Ask me what I know to be a verity that can deal with my soul. That's what I need. This prayer, Psalm 62, is a liturgy that David is reciting to himself in perhaps the darkest moment of his life. Because if if you asked David, how do you feel? He would say, how do you think I feel? My son is trying to kill me. I'm not in my seat of power anymore. I'm not in my city. How do you imagine I feel? But if you asked David, what do you know? That's when we get the words like, towards God is rest, oh my soul. This I know, so hear this truth, wretched and scared heart of mine. This is where we get the words, He is the one who gives me hope. This I know to be true, so hear this truth, wretched and scared, heart of mine. And he alone is my elevated place. He is the real high, rocky summit. I know this to be truth, so hear this truth, wretched and scared, heart of mine. And we are at our best when we engage our liturgy with this same kind of posture. You know, because many times, if I'm honest, I've engaged our, our liturgy of confession before I felt sorry for anything. But while I knew I was guilty. You know, I've received our words of pardon before I really felt like I needed to be delivered all that much. But while I knew I needed to be rescued. And I've uttered our words of generosity before I felt like giving anything. In fact, most of the time, I feel like giving nothing. I'd much rather hoard. But while I know that to follow the way of Jesus is to be characterized by a spirit of generosity, toward God is rest, oh my soul, hear it. The most comprehensive rest for our souls is the reminder and confession of what we know about God. And we have another name for that. It's worship. That's what we're doing. You know, Mike said a few, week back, a few weeks back when we started this series that the Psalms are good when they're studied, but they are at their best when they're used. And I would add to that that the Psalms aren't just a prayer book for us, but they are also a playbook for us, for constructing our own liturgies that confess to us the things that we know to be true. Our lives need daily liturgy, desperately. We need daily reminders of what we know and an opportunity to confess these things, most often to ourselves. There was was one, one pastor who said, why do we preach the gospel every week? Because we forget the gospel every week. Why do we engage liturgy daily? Because we tend to forget what we know. And so I would say li- we, we need to liturgize our homes. You know, we, we have reading pa- plans. We have, we have prayers on our website. Light a candle in the morning. I, I, I don't care. Liturgize your home. Create space and an opportunity for you to confess to yourself what you know to be true about God. You know, the, the other day, Mike and I were listening to a, a podcast, um, and, and the, the speaker mentioned that every morning, by rule, you know, he, in, in his rule of life, he won't allow himself to look at a screen before he's first gone outside. He said, because when I go outside, I'm reminded, like, I'm a creature, and this is all creation. Like, I'm a part of what you're doing. He kind of reminds himself of the role that he plays in the grand narrative of God. Even as small as, I'm reminding myself that I'm a creature of yours. And he says that he engages the rest of his day differently. He engages his technology differently. That's a liturgy. That is an intentional practice that's set up to establish in the front of your thinking the story and truth of God. That's what needs to be characteristic of our lives as worshipers and in each of our homes. Liturgize your homes. Don't ask me what I feel. Ask me what I know. And as Alistair said, this is the verity that can deal with my soul. And the table plays this role as well. The, the, the table stands above liturgy. It's not just a reminder of what we know. It's an experience of who we know. This sacrament where we spiritually get to interact with the living Christ. And so by habit, we do this every week as a reminder that his body was given for us. We need to know that. Not just once. We need to know that Often. His blood was shed for us. We need to know that more than once. And so we engage this table as a liturgy, as a sacrament, as an interaction. So we're going to pray now. Pray like David did. Pray with desperation. Pray a liturgical plea along with me. Not the things that we feel, but the things that we know to be true about God. The one who offers verity for our soul. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You saw us in our plight, in our brokenness, in our helplessness, in our deadness. And you made us alive. You have raised us and seated us alongside you. You are patient with us. You are merciful. You have offered yourself to us in so many ways. May we receive with gratitude the things we know to be true about what you have done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.